0: Hello everyone and welcome to the April 9th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd skirin Manukian, langevin Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our crime report. Two executives at a South Los Angeles company that offered alcohol and drug abuse treatment services were arrested on federal charges. Prosecutors allege they defrauded the Medi-Cal program by submitting bills seeking more than $2 million for services that did not qualify for reimbursement or simply were never provided. 45-year-old Ms. Misbel Mohammed of Inglewood and her mother-in-law, 63-year-old Erlinda Abella, also of Inglewood, were taken into custody without incident. The two are named in a 23-count indictment returned by a federal grand jury, which charges both with 21 counts of health care fraud and two counts of aggravated identity theft. Muhammad is the owner and executive director of the New U Center, and Abella co-founded the center and is the program director. The company had contracts to provide substance abuse treatment services through the drug Medical program to adults and teenagers in Los Angeles County. The indictment alleges that it submitted fraudulent bills for counseling sessions that were not conducted at all, were not conducted at authorized locations, or did not comply with drug Medi-Cal regulations regarding the length of sessions or the number of patients and the two allegedly caused the center to bill for clients who did not have a substance abuse problem and forged client signatures on documents such as sign-in sheets. The services were for girls residing at Diamonddale Adolescent Care Facility Group homes in Lancaster, Long Beach, and Carson, facilities where the center was not authorized to provide counseling. The indictment alleges it submitted over $2 million in false and fraudulent claims for group and individual substance abuse counseling services. The two face a statutory maximum sentence of 10 years in federal prison for each of the 21 health care fraud charges. This case is being investigated by the FBI and the California Department of Justice Bureau of Medical Fraud and Elder Abuse. The Riverside District Attorney announced that four men were arrested and charged with several felonies stemming from an alleged $8 million health care fraud scheme. 42-year-old Brian Andrew Laporte of Poway, 39-year-old Dennis Davin Bonavilla of Muretta, 43-year-old Jeffrey D. Ogletree of Meridian, Ohio, and 44-year-old Barbar Equiball, M.D. of Irvine, are charged with 23 counts. Dr. Barbar Equiball was the head of the Riverside Regional Surgery Center, where he told some patients that medi would not cover their treatment and had them sign papers for a free health care insurance policy. Other defendants set up shell companies with no actual employees, and had connections to Free Choice Healthcare Foundation, an unregistered charity, which claimed it was formed to help those in need pay health care premiums. Hospital Sisters Health System donated more than $5 million to Free Choice Healthcare Foundation in January 2015. The money was supposed to be used to provide health care insurance to 333 poor people in the Midwest for one year. The defendants received $5 million in fraudulent income through donations made under false pretenses and another $3 million from illegal kickbacks of funds paid on fraudulent health care insurance claims. Dr. Eek Riverside Regional Surgery Center drew the attention of the District Attorney's Office and the California Department of Insurance when 22 of 23 alleged employees of the Shell Companies were treated at the Iqbal's center within five weeks of getting health insurance policies. One of the defendants, Andrew Laporte, was just released from federal prison in 2013, where he was sent for his role in a $20 million mortgage fraud scheme that was charged in 2010. I guess he didn't get the message. The California Medical Board records claim that another defendant, which is Dr. Barber Iqbal graduated from Ross University School of Medicine in 2001 and that he is still currently licensed to practice in California with no record of disciplinary action. Now, Ross University School of Medicine is a private international medical school in Portsmouth, Dominica, founded in 1978. In 1985, California state medical licensing officials began investigating Ross University School of Medicine along with other schools located in the Caribbean. The officials released a report stating at the time that the medical school had nearly no admission standards and that the school was in the business of providing medical degrees to everyone that wanted one. Now, the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office announced that an Orange County public adjuster was sentenced to 10 years in state prison for pocketing more than $1.2 million from fire victims' insurance payouts. This was 62-year-old Jose Villa of San Clemente. He pleaded no contest to eight felony counts of diverting construction funds. Villa owned and operated Statewide Claims Advisors, Inc. in Irvine. Villa also admitted to sentencing enhancement allegations, which is dealing with excessive taking of property and aggravated white-collar crime. A Los Angeles Superior Court judge sentenced him to prison, imposed a $10,000 fine, and ordered $1.2 million of restitution to his victims. Via deposited the victim's insurance reimbursement checks into his business checking account, so he could handle demolition and construction in the months following the fires. But prosecutors say he kept most of the insurance money instead of using it for the victim's benefit. Via is serving a seven-year prison sentence for another insurance fraud case, which will run simultaneously with the newer 10-year prison term. Via was convicted last May of two felony counts each, of grand theft by embezzlement and forgery for taking insurance proceeds proceeds from other fire victims. The California Department of Insurance revoked his license to serve as a public adjuster and permanently barred him from applying for or holding any new license it issues. And in regulatory news, Christine Baker abruptly retired as director of the Department of Industrial Relations. Her decision comes as a surprise to the industry stakeholders and was announced by an email she sent to DIR employees last week. No public announcement of her decision has been made by the DIR. Christine Baker was the first woman to serve as Director of the Department of Industrial Relations. Her experience comes from working with Labor and Management as Chief of the Division of Labor Statistics and Research between 1984 and 1989. She then served as the Deputy Director for the Division of Workers' Compensation from 1990 to 1994, and then the Executive Officer of the California Commission on Health and Safety and Workers' Compensation from its inception in 1994 until April 2011. In April 2011, Christine was named Acting Director of the DIR and was appointed Director by Governor Brown in December. The Senate Rules Committee voted unanimously to confirm her appointment in May of 2012. As Director Christine served as the State Administrator of Apprenticeship, the Administrator of the State OSHA Plan, an ex-officio member of the California Self-Insurers Security Fund, and an ex-officio member of the State Fund Board of Directors. Ms. Baker is President-Elect of the International Association of of Industrial Accidents Boards and Commissions, and has chaired the California Insurance Commissioner's Workers' Compensation Fraud Focus Group and the Advisory Committee of the International Forum on Disability Management. In 2012, she received the Human Rights Award from the League of United Latin American Citizens. She will surely be missed by those of us in the industry. The WCIRB Governing Committee voted to authorize the organization to submit a mid-year pure premium rate filing to the California Department of Insurance. The mid-year filing will propose a July 1 advisory pure premium rates, which are 7.2% lower than the Insurance Commissioner's approved average January 1, 2018, advisory pure premium rate. This proposed decrease follows six consecutive decreases since early 2015 and, if approved, will result in an average decrease of more than 35% from the January 2015 advisory pure premium rates. The Governing Committee's decision was based on the WCIRB Actuarial Committee's analysis of insurer loss and loss adjustment experience. The Actuarial Committee noted that cumulative injury claims continue to increase, particularly in the Los Angeles region. In addition, medical severity shows signs of increase after several years of more modest severity trends driven by Senate Bill 863 and allocated loss adjustment expenses continue to increase. Despite these upward pressures on system costs, The Governing Committee believed a reduction in advisory peer premium rates was warranted by the favorable loss development largely driven by significant increases in claim settlement rates, a sharp decline in lien filings following the implementation of SB 1160, and anticipated savings resulting from the new drug formulary. The Division of Workers' Compensation has posted proposed interpreter fee schedule regulations to its online forum, where members of the public may review and comment on the proposals. The draft regulations include an objective uniform fee structure based on the federal court system, and higher rates are paid for certified interpreters over provisionally certified to encourage use of certified interpreters. The new regulation will accomplish a reduction in double billing fees for multiple interpretations during the same time slot and require a detailed invoice information and billing codes. The independent bill review procedure will be required to quickly resolve disputes over bill amounts and there will be an emphasis on the use of qualified interpreters. Specific documentations of efforts to obtain a certified interpreter is required to ensure that an injured worker is provided with a qualified interpreter. The U.S. Justice Department has requested court permission to participate in settlement negotiations aimed at resolving lawsuits by state and local governments against opioid manufacturers and distributors. It asks to serve as amicus, or friend of the court, that would provide information to help craft non-monetary remedies to combat the opioid crisis. Attorney General Jeff Sessions said his department is determined to see that justice is done in this case and that ultimately there be an end to this nation's unprecedented drug crisis. But this signaled that the Justice Department would not be seeking to participate as an active litigant in the case. The federal judge in charge of the multi-district litigation has been pushing for a global settlement and has invited state attorneys general who have cases and probes not before him to participate in the negotiations. The defendants include drug makers Purdue Pharma, Johnson & Johnson, Teva Pharmaceutical Industries, Endo International PLC, and Allergen, PLC, as well as distributors Amerisource Bergen, Cardinal Health, and McKesson. The Justice Department said that while it was pursuing opioid-related criminal and civil cases, it would not be proper to consolidate them with the multi-district litigation lawsuits. Nevertheless, it said the federal government could provide information to assist in crafting a settlement. The Justice Department noted the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration had already agreed to produce data on the names and market shares of opioid manufacturers and distributors in each case and each state. The Department said it also had an interest in facilitating discussions about the party's legal obligations given the federal government's own substantial financial stake fighting an epidemic. cal cited California Premier Roofscapes Incorporated for repeat violations of fall protection safety orders and proposed more than $134,000 in penalties. The Escondido-based company was investigated and cited on six different occasions over the past four years for putting its workers at risk of fatal falls. CalOSHA opened the most recent investigation in August of 2017 after receiving a report that workers were not wearing proper fall protection while installing tiles on the roof of a three-story Chula Vista home. Inspectors found that California Premier Roofscapes failed to ensure their workers were wearing safety harnesses and other personal fall protection. Employees were not properly trained on fall protection and roof work hazards. Cal OSHA issued citations to them for four violations, including one repeat serious violation for failing to ensure that workers were wearing fall protection, one repeat general violation for failing to effectively implement and maintain a written injury and illness prevention program, and two general violations for not inspecting equipment prior to each use and inadequate training on fall hazards and protection. The very first inspection with California Premier Riftscapes was opened back in October of 2014 after Kalosha received a complaint that employees were working on an Irvine roof with no fall protection. Kalosha inspected a California Premier Riffscapes residential construction site in Azusa the following day after receiving a complaint involving an unsafe portable ladder. Then, the following month, Cal-OSHA investigated an accident involving a worker who suffered serious head and knee injuries after falling 15 feet from a ladder attached to scaffolding at a Carlsbad residential construction site. And then, in June 2015, Cal-OSHA opened an inspection and cited the same company, for a repeat serious violation after workers with no fall protection were reported on the roof of an Irvine construction site. And then in March of the following year, Cal OSHA inspected a report that the company workers wore harnesses but were not properly tied off to prevent falls from the roof of a Tustin construction site. No wonder falls are the leading cause of death in construction nationwide. And in California's roofing industry, falls have caused nine deaths and 162 serious injuries just since 2014. A serious violation is cited when there is a realistic possibility that death or serious harm could result from the actual hazardous condition. A repeat violation is cited when the employer was previously cited for the same or a very similar violation and the earlier citation became final within the past Five years. A workers' compensation Medicare set-aside arrangement is a financial agreement that allocates a portion of a workers' compensation settlement to pay for future medical services. Employers submit the proposed amount of the set-aside and rationale for approval by CMS, which is the Center for Medicare Services. And these amounts include significant sums for lifetime medication, often including opioids. The estimate of future drug costs often includes a calculation for opioids far in excess of what is reasonable, especially now that the opioid addiction crisis has focused more attention on drug addiction. But now CMS has reacted to the opioid crisis, and created new rules that may lower sums required by the MSA. This April, CMS issued a final rule that updates Medicare Advantage plan and Medicare Part D policy changes. The new rule provides the plans with new tools to improve quality of care and provide more plan choices for enrollees. CMS estimates that the changes will result in $295 million in savings a year from the Medicare program over the next five years. The CMS policy change also helps the implementation of the Federal Comprehensive Addiction and Recovery Act of 2016, also known as CARA. CARA requires CMS to establish, through regulation, a framework that allows Part D Medicare prescription plans to implement drug management programs. Under such programs, the Part D plans can limit at-risk beneficiaries' access to coverage for frequently abused drugs beginning with the 2019 plan year. CMS will designate opioids and benzodiazepines as frequently abused drugs. CMS will utilize drug management programs as well as clinical guidelines used to determine if a beneficiary is potentially at risk. Part D plans will be allowed to limit an at-risk beneficiary's access to frequently abused drugs and to select a prescriber and a pharmacy. CMS will, be, will exempt beneficiaries who are being treated for active cancer-related pain are receiving palliative or end-of-life care, or are in hospice or long-term care from drug management programs. Thus, CMS has issued this final rule with the goal of managing use of long-term, high-dose opioid and benzodiazepine usage. In 2019, when these rules take effect, CMS should apply similar thinking to workers' compensation Medicare set-aside approvals, in which the beneficiary is treating with high-dosage opioids. If the Medicare D plan would no longer be responsible for paying for the drugs, it should not be included in the Medicare set-aside allocation. Likewise, CMS policy in discouraging long-term, highly abused opioids should be applied across all CMS policy, including workers' comp policy review. And in other industry news, the idea that the costs for caring for injured workers have shifted to Social Security Disability Insurance is being disputed by a recent study conducted by the National Council on Compensation Insurance. The study was focused on the interaction between SSDI and workers' compensation benefits and explored cost shifting that may occur between the two programs it found that the majority of states did not decrease benefits with a specific focus on permanent partial disability and permanent total disability. Over the last 20 years, some injured workers have not been able to return to work and have, indeed, applied for Social Security disability, sometimes while they are receiving the workers' compensation partial disability benefits. But the amount that is paid out by Social Security over a lifetime for someone who has a workplace injury, may be far higher than is paid by workers' compensation. The biggest change occurred in the number of SSDI applications during the 2007 through 2009 recession and was common across all states, and that is in contrast or versus any kind of activity at this state level. The number of Social Security disability insurance beneficiaries rose 58% and SSDI expenditures grew 138% to $143 billion from $60 billion from 2001 to 2015. But since 2010, the number of SSDI beneficiaries has been relatively stable and spending growth has moderated. In states like Illinois and Nebraska, A person who receives both workers' comp permanent total disability benefits and SSDI workers' comp shoulders a greater portion of total benefits. And that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device. By searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish a daily flash briefing on the Amazon Alexa Echo platform. Search for Workers' Compensation News on the Amazon website. Again, I'm Renee Folson, attorney with Floyd Skarin, Minukian, and Langavin. Thanks for joining us today. And please drop by again next week for more news.